Again, I'm very grateful to have the opportunity to speak this morning. Um, just for those who don't know me, my name's Tyson, and I normally lead the music here on Sunday mornings, but um, alongside of Adam McLeod and myself, we are both in leadership training here at the church, and part of that training is that we have different opportunities to bring the word and to speak. Um, in the past four times that I've spoken, it's been a little bit easier um, with the way that I think through things as I'm able to examine a text, a specific one text, and exposit it from there and teach everyone what that text means. Well, today, um, you guys get to experience the opportunity that Adam gave me and challenged me to teach topically. Um, and the topic is on the fear of God. And topically has been, studying has been so much um, more enriching in some ways, but so much more difficult because it's not taking one text, it's taking the whole of Scripture to teach a topic. And so I've got so much material here that, and, and we're only scratching the surface. The fear of God is mentioned, I think, over 150 times for sure, and it's implied so many more times beyond that. And we're definitely not going to hit all of those. But I tried to, alongside of the help of others that I've been studying and stuff, take the, the ones that were very selective for the quality that we're trying to understand these things. This morning before we started, I definitely wanted to bring up the topic of the fear of God and read a passage to you that is from Ecclesiastes 12. You don't have to turn there yet. I will um, I'll read this to you. It says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. So this is chapter, 13, or chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes. After 12 chapters of him saying things, he says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Did you catch that? Ecclesiastes 12 says, fear God and keep his commandments. Why? For this is the whole duty of man. So the fear of God is, is obviously important because Scripture says that it is the duty of man to fear God and to keep his commandments. And this just got me thinking, and before we jump into the text, I wanted to, to read some, some horribly sad comments that I found online on an atheist online community. I was just interested. I was like, I wonder what atheists believe about the fear of God. And I typed it in, and I mean, it's definitely one of the top topics that a lot of them talk about. And one website that I found, this atheist said, I used to fear God. It was, a real, it was real to me and a constant source of stress. Perhaps when atheists speak of newfound freedom, some of it is really the shedding of fear. And then he poses the question, did you ever fear the Lord? And if so, how did it feel to ditch that fear? Okay, so this is the forum, and that's the, the question that he set up. Listen to these comments. First person said, when I believed there was a God, I thought of him as another grandpa up there rooting for me and laughing at my mistakes. I do think I got scared once the first time I said a bad word. But I really only got scared when I began to doubt, when I began to do my own research about where the Bible came from. The more I dug, the more I felt like I was doing something really awful, something that would have horrible consequences. Another person said, I constantly felt fear while I was a Christian. Although it was more of a fear of hell than it was a fear of God, I was constantly afraid that I would end up in hell and might not really be saved. When I first stopped believing in hell, the fear of it started to disappear. It was one of the best feelings I had from my deconversion experience and rather liberating like a tremendous weight was suddenly lifted. I'd still get dreams where I ended up going to hell, but they no longer scare me much anymore. 
Another person said, my mother dragged us to church three times a week. Religious belief was molded into my life by all the sources constantly around me. When I got older, I was very afraid of stopping what I felt was the ridiculous God belief. One day I decided I would make up my mind and either either go all the way or get all the way out of it, no matter what. I'm so glad I got all the way out of it. Afterwards, I could see things more clearly and assess the insanity it takes for people to follow and have faith in and believe such a claptrap. Listen to this one. The fact that God was omnipresent and having an eye on me 24-7 was disturbing. But I don't recall having any fear of God. I was informed about heaven and hell, but when I came to know that heaven isn't about clouds, as I was told, or even somewhere that we even know of, I simply gave up the idea that these places could even exist. I had a feeling that what I was being taught about God was not right, which led me to question God's existence. Soon, due to numerous reasons, I converted into an agnostic. I didn't give up the fear of God as it wasn't present in me at the first place. We're going to come back to this idea. That's that's fascinating. Instead, I gave up the need for a God. And here's the last one. Well, when I was younger and still believed, I was very afraid of God. How could I not be? God was a giant, stern-faced, paternal figure that would apparently drop me into a fiery lake if I didn't do everything exactly right. I was terrified of God. It wasn't until I stopped living with that fear that I started moving away from religion. When I became aware that there was no smiting, that evil and wrongdoing in our world went unpunished, I stopped being afraid. It was all downhill from there. An easy stroll from fanatic, fearful zealotry to the cool, rational embrace of atheism. Can you believe this? I mean, I can. I mean, these people talk about they, they didn't necessarily give up the fear of God as it was not present in them in the first place. And we're going to see from Scripture that the absence of the fear of God is exactly what leads to this type of thinking. But it was, I found it was unfortunately so disheartening when they said, in a positive way, it was all downhill from there, an easy stroll from fanatic, fearful zealotry to cool embrace of atheism. But when I read that, I really realized the lack of the fear of God really was downhill from there. They, they left the, the ideas of choosing to believe in this God because they, they lost the fear of God. And a lot of this is rooted in wrong thoughts about God, and that's what we're going to try to tackle this morning. So I printed off some notes for you. If you have them, then just follow along with me. If you don't, there's notes on the back table. Ben would be glad to get them for you. So the biblical command up there at the top, this came from the passage that I already read to you. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of, of, God, of, of man. So the biblical command that you could write down there is to fear God and to keep his commandments. This is the biblical command. So in light of whatever the atheists believe about fear or whatever they've decided in their own personal journey, the Bible is clear and there is a command that we are to fear God and to keep his commandments. But what does it mean to fear God? Some of you guys already might know this. We've been taught this in some ways in Sunday school. Others may have no idea. And I hope that by examining what Scripture says about this that we'll be able to understand today. So if the command is to fear God and keep his commandments, then right underneath that in italics I said, in order for Christians to properly fear the Lord, we must first have a different perspective about things. So there's three different perspectives that we're going to examine today. The first one is we must understand how the fear of the Lord is defined. Defined. I mean, right, if you're going to understand what anything really is, you've got to know what it means. So we want to examine how the word fear and how it 
the fear of the Lord in Scripture is defined. And that answers the question, what does it mean? There are two aspects of the normal use of fear in Scripture. So when the fear of the Lord is mentioned, it uses the word fear, the common everyday word for fear in Hebrew in the Old Testament and in Greek in the New Testament. So there's not an extra special word that's used when it's talking about the fear of God. The fear of God uses the same word fear as is used in normal everyday occurrences when fear is used. So we're going to try to look at different aspects of the one word, but there's only one word. So what does it mean? Well, I mean, if you guys, somebody tell me what you would think fear means. It's fear. Not the fear of the Lord, but just fear. Yeah. Anything else? We'll roll with that. Be unafraid. That's good. Um, that's that's very good. It's the, the first aspect we're going to look at goes along with that because that's the normal everyday thing. It's a fear of dread. And you can write down any of these things that I'm saying. It's a fear of dread. Um, dread and terror seized with alarm to put to flight by terrifying. So it's a, a fear of dread, of terror, of seized with alarm. This is what we normally understand, I think, when we think of fear. Um, an example that I am going to adapt was used by a pastor named Albert Martin, and it really helped me see the different aspects of fear, but he was mentioning a, a boy and a bully, but I'm, I'm going to ask you guys to think about, imagine that there is a 10-year-old boy who is walking in the woods with his parents, and it's starting to get dusk, and he goes off to examine some thing that he finds on a stump, and before you know it, he starts going on a different trail and ends up getting lost in the woods. So as darkness starts to fall, the boy realizes he is far away from his parents. He is lost in the woods. He is starting to panic, starting to run around, and it's dark, only to then round a corner of trees to see if there's a path that he could take. And there at the end of the path, there seems to him what seems to be a 10-foot hooded figure. What do you think that boy would feel? Well, whether it was an old gnarly tree or whether it was something really there, it doesn't matter to a 10-year-old boy. It is fear. If you're lost in the woods, I mean, I'd be scared now. I mean, forget the fact that he's 10 years old. I mean, if I rounded a corner and saw something I thought was a hooded figure in the woods, I would be terrified. That's the aspect of this. It's dread and terror. It's a dreadful fear that compels one to tremble, right? I would tremble. That would be one of the things that would happen. But then run away. One wouldn't dare stick around. To run away would be the wise choice, right? This fear is based on potential harm. It is a great dread. So it's, it's fear that there's something there. There's potential harm from the object of fear. I am driven to run away. That's the first aspect of fear. We see this actually in Scripture and in a lot of places. I'm just going to choose a few. Deuteronomy 2.24, God tells the Israelites, as they're going in to take possession of the land, and Adams mentioned this two weeks ago, he said, begin to take possession and contend with this king in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble in being anguish because of you. This is definitely a dreadful fear and anguish. Joshua 2.9, he's telling Joshua, before the men lay down, oh, this is Rahab. And she's speaking to the spies there. And she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon this, fallen upon us. So this is in direct. God said it in Deuteronomy. Rahab's experiencing it with her people and Joshua. 
The fear of you has fallen upon us, and that we, all the inhabitants of the land, melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond the Jordan. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. There was a fear of dread that the people there felt, and it caused their hearts to melt away. This is seen in the New Testament, too, in Matthew 14. And this is after Jesus had dismissed the crowds and he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. The disciples decided to go across the river in the boat, across the sea there in the boat. And it says, in the fourth night, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. So you see this aspect of fear in Scripture. This is the normal everyday use of it. There is um, the dread of the people of God being put on the hearts of the people that were in the land. And then also when you're in a boat and you see someone walking on the water and you think it's a ghost, very fearful, very dreadful. Jesus had to even say, hey, do not be afraid. This is that aspect of fear. And any time also the angels would appear to people, what would they do? They would be very afraid. Normally they have to introduce themselves with fear not. It's a very terrifying thing. Well, let's move on to the second aspect. And we see that there is a second aspect because we examine different scripture passages that seem to have a different implication than running away. It's almost one where you stay and run to the object that you fear instead of running away. So there, it begs the question that there may be a second aspect. We're going to go ahead and write this down. Fear of reverential awe. This is, might have, this is definitely something that you might have learned from Sunday school when people say, what does it mean to fear God? Well, it's a fear of reverential awe. And I think that that definition is a good definition. Because it, it, some of the things that you could write down is that it's respect and honor. It's reverence to stand in awe. Respect and honor and reverence. Fear of reverential awe. One word I definitely want you to write down because I didn't know what it was is it's the fear of veneration. It's V-E-N-E-R-A-T-I-O-N, veneration. And I had to look this up because it's, I'd, I'd never heard that word, but it's a fear of veneration. It's a profound respect. So it's not just a respect. It's a profound respect for someone or something, to be astonished, fear of veneration. So there's a fear of dread aspect, and then there's a fear of veneration. This is a fear felt when standing in the presence of someone to be greatly admired and respected. So let's take the same boy who's lost in the woods, who sees the hooded figure, who's scared. There's a definite aspect of fear that he feels. Let's take him, and again, adapting the example by Albert Martin, let's take him to the White House to where he is taking a tour with his school group in his class. He's wandering through all the different rooms and looking at this fact and this fact and just taking in all the, the neat information and aspects of the White House. When a White House official breaks through out of a door and into the line of the classmates and calls him by name and points to him and says, Johnny. The president of the United States wishes to have a word with you. Like, man, if that happened to me, again, what? Fear, huh, heart, sink. But is it, is it a fear of dread? Is the president going to try to kill me? Probably not. Uh, hopefully not. In some countries that may be the case. But here, imagine, and that's why the boy is a good example because he's not 
is not thwarted by different perceptions of government and stuff like that. It's just there is someone very high and authoritative and important, and he wishes to speak with who? With me? So this is the type of venerating fear that one could have. Of, it's a fear that compels one to tremble, yes, but it's to stay put. Remember, the other one is to tremble and run away. This is tremble and stay put. One wouldn't dare run away. To run away would be dishonoring. Can you imagine that? Like if you run away from the ghoul, that's a good idea. If the president wants to talk to you and you run away, that's dishonoring. It's like, what? So it's fear based on value and position of the one feared. It's also seen in Scripture of men, and this is where we begin to see there has to be a different aspect of fear here. First Kings 3 says, Then the king answered. This is Solomon. Remember there's a story of two ladies that are arguing about whose child is whose? Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king. Other translations say they feared him. Because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. And also it's seen in Joshua 4. On the day that the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel so that they revered him or feared him, just as they had feared Moses all of the days of his life. So God exalted Joshua to a position of authority so that people, what? Feared him, respected him, honored him in a way just like they had done with Moses. This is not the fear of dread. It's a venerating fear. Now, of God, this is the whole predominant aspect of God seen in Scripture normally. Um, in Psalm 33, 8, it's actually on the back of your song sheet, the whole psalm. I just wanted you guys to take it home and read it at some point. But it says in the bold there in Psalm 33, 8, Let all of the earth fear the Lord. Let all of the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. This is a command. The psalmist says, let all of the earth fear the Lord. And then he says, let all of the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. This is definitely that aspect of respect and honor and reverential awe. Psalm 96, 4 says, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. This is the type of fear that Moses felt, if you remember in Exodus 3, when he sees the burning bush, he turns aside to go see, why is it burning and not consumed? What's going on here? And he goes over there only for the bush, a voice to come from the bush. It says, Moses, take off your sandals. Your place where you're standing is holy. He's having an encounter with the living and holy God that we sing about this morning. And what does he do? Well, he's afraid and he covers his face and he takes off his shoes. But he doesn't run away. Running, running away is dishonoring. God is calling him to stay put. It's a different aspect of fear. This is the predominant aspect of fear when the fear of God is mentioned in Scripture. We are to honor and revere and stand in awe of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So do we understand at least the two different aspects of fear? Am I hope helping you guys understand that? Well, it was interesting. I found one passage where both aspects are seen in one verse, and that's in Mark 4. 35 through 41, it says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. Again, talking about the, the boat travel across the, the sea there. Seems like whenever they do that, there's scary situations. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and on the boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Jesus was. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? 
And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And listen to this next verse. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Matthew 9, the parallel of that passage says, And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? So there's two aspects of fear you could see in here. There's fear, we're going to die, we're going to drown. Can you imagine being in a dark, scary ocean where the thought of falling off and you have no idea what's underneath you and you dying and drowning in the sea? That's terrifying. And they go and wake Jesus and say, well, do you not even care that we're about to die? And he stands up and he just says, peace be still. And creation obeys him just as it obeyed him when he created the world. And the disciple, he looks at the disciples and says, why, why are you guys afraid? Do you not have any faith? Why are you afraid? I'm rebuking your fear. And then it says, and then great fear fell upon them. Did he rebuke that? No, that's the appropriate response to this. There's the first aspect there, bad. Not so good in this situation when you've got the king of kings in your boat and you're afraid. But the second aspect is very appropriate when you have the king of kings in your boat. And that's the fear of veneration. This fear, um, I'm going to give you a small example of how this this was for me. Last Sunday when I was studying this, I woke up five in the morning. It was really dark. I was praying about, God, help me see this. Well, Sarah had had a, a baby shower the day before and had all these decorations hanging from the ceiling, some from the windows. By God's, I guess, great design of humor and teaching, he decided to allow all of those things to fall at one time. And I'm in the kitchen behind a wall. I can't see what's going on in there. So I don't know about these things on the ceiling falling. But what it sounds like to me is if somebody is suddenly lifting up the window and bursting through our blinds. So to me, I'm gripped with fear that in two seconds max, I mean, the sound of this, I'm about to meet somebody that's about to try to harm me. So I remember stepping behind, ready to engage. I only had a phone. I was ready to throw it. That's all I had. But I'm about to engage someone that is intruded in my house. And, of course, I get behind the wall, and there's nobody there. Everything was silent. But I'll tell you what I heard. My heart was like. It was really slow and really loud. And I remember sitting back down and being like, okay, where was I? And I was like, oh, fear. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Help me see that that is, that is terror right there. Dread. Something that is harming me. Well, it's really neat because later on that night, I went to bed. And as you guys know, if you remember, last week there were terrible storms here. About 3 in the morning, I wake up to the sound of lightning exploding what sounds like outside of my door. And it just gripped me with terror. I woke up. I remember looking at Sarah, and I was half asleep, and I was like, what in the world? What in the world? She's like, it's lightning. It's okay. But I was scared. I was gripped with fear. So then as I lay in bed, I was still allowing my heart to kind of calm down. I started thinking about lightning and thunder and, and the power of storms and the might of, of just the, the, the weather that was outside. And, and it brought to mind the passage that we read this morning, Revelation 4. God brought it to mind and reminded me that around his throne as he is being worshipped, there's peals of thunder and lightning as these creatures are screaming holy and holy and holy. And I started thinking less about lightning and more about the God who is above lightning, the God who lightning serves. And there was not so much a fear of dread as much anymore, as much as it started to move into this honoring and respectful Humble trembling as I lay in bed thinking about a God who controls this powerful source of power. 
So that's just kind of an example of how there's two aspects that I experienced last week. All right, moving on. Um, there are two perspectives of fear from Martin Luther and R.C. Sproul that I'm going to mention. And I kind of wrote them right down there. There's a servile or a servile fear, which comes from the Latin word, which means slave. And you could write in your blank either of these. It's a fear which a slave would fear toward his taskmaster. So felt by a slave towards his taskmaster or a prisoner towards his torturer. Either one that you want to write down is fine. Slave towards his taskmaster or prisoner towards his torturer. This is very similar to a dreadful fear, but is one where the person knows that there is definite harm coming from this person. It's one rooted in anxiety and dread. I mean, you can imagine if you're a prisoner fearing your torturer. But this is a fear also because of the knowledge of the one to be feared that it may produce inward bitterness. I mean, no one respects in some ways a torturer if you're a prisoner. This is not the aspect of fear Christians are called to fear God with. This type of fear leads to a performance-based relationship with God where one is constantly anxious about making God angry. This is the type of fear that the atheist felt towards God. Wrong perspectives of who he is. This is that type of fear. This view assumes he is ready to punish us at our smallest move in the wrong direction at a moment's notice because he's mean and ill-tempered taskmaster. This is a fear felt by many of those atheists. This is seen in a parable in Luke 19 when the servant of the hid the talent in the ground and he said to the to the the master i hid it because i knew you were a hard man and i was afraid of you that's the type of aspect of a servile fear where i'm doing something because i know you're a hard man i'm i'm trying to not get the consequences of what my actions entail but the second one is a filial fear and this comes from a latin word which means son and you could write down this is a loving fear a child has towards his father child has towards his father a son who loves his father and does not want to offend or displease him this fear is born out of respect love and admiration not so much because of not wanting to get punished this type of fear is rooted in respect and love and it produces inward obedience can you see the difference between being a slave and being a son sinclair ferguson quotes that this is an indefinable mixture of reverence and fear pleasure joy and awe which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he has done for us. This is a type of fear Joseph had in fleeing Potiphar's wife, right? When Potiphar's wife is trying to seduce him into sinning, he says, think about all the things that Potiphar has done. He's elevated to me to this. He's given me everything except for yourself. How in the world could I do this great sin against? You would think you'd say Potiphar, but he didn't. He said, how in the world can I do this great sin against God? He had the proper perspective of, I'm not necessarily afraid of, the consequences of a mean and angry God by sinning with you. But my respect level and my honor and my reverent view of who God is means that I do not do this sin because it would be sinning against my king. This is seen all throughout the Bible, and we cannot take the time to examine all of them. But I had two questions that I kind of thought of that before we move on. Should people stand in reverential awe of God and fear him? The answer is, Absolutely. It is a command for the whole world. Remember Psalm 33? Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. So should we have this reverential, venerating fear of God? Absolutely. It's a command for the whole world. What about this? Should people have a dreadful fear of God? What do you think? Yes. The answer is absolutely. One should fear God if there is reason to be afraid of him. And to encounter his judgments. Listen uh, to Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. Well, before we get to that, think about in Genesis 3, when Adam sins against God, what does he do? 
He hides himself because he's what? Afraid. Think about how disrespectful and dishonoring it would be to have sinned against a holy God and shot the breeze with him when he came back, walking in the garden. Ready for a walk, God? No. He was afraid. He knew what he had done. That's a proper feeling. Fear a dread of God because encountering his judgments was something that was deserved. Hebrews 10, 26-31 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If we spend our lives rejecting the gospel, the only thing left for us is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know, we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. In Second Thessalonians 1, 5-10, we studied this as well. I'll just read a section. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, when he comes back with his mighty angels in flaming fire, he will be inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe because our testimony to you was believed. You see this? So unbelievers should definitely dreadfully fear God and flee from the approaching wrath of God. And how can we do that? By turning to Christ, the way that he has made for us to escape this wrath. It is a proper thing to be in dread of a God who brings wrath against sin if you are in the category of receiving that wrath when he comes back. To not feel this would be crazy. I mean, it's the essence of what somebody said, the essence of impiety. So if you are not saved, if you do not know God, then yes, you should be afraid of him. You should be afraid of him. He is holy and righteous and hot bent towards destroying sin. He's prepared hell for Satan and his angels, but for also the, also those who have will continue on in unbelief and rejection of the Son of God. How much more, Scripture says, will they be punished who trampled underfoot the Son of God? There's only thing left is fearful expectation of judgment. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. So unbelievers should, but that's the gospel. Turn to Christ. Turn to him who is this dreadfully fearful God who provided a way by killing his son to make a way. Believers, though, what about believers? Should we have dreadful fear of God? Good question, eh? This is a good question. Uh, I think that the answer is yes and no. No in the sense that we do not fear condemnation, right? There's there. Now for there's now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans says. And also we can approach boldly into his throne of grace because of what Christ has done. However, we are not to ever lose the aspect of the dreadful fear of God. Jesus commanded it in the New Testament. Luke 12 says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom you are to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You see what he's saying there? So don't be afraid of what you're going to eat and not going to eat and those who can kill the body and might persecute you. Don't, be, don't have that aspect of fear. But I'll tell you who you're to fear. Keep the aspect of the dreadful fear of God. 
live your life to honor and please him. Because he's the one who can't just kill you and have nothing else to do. He can kill you and throw you into hell. This is a holy God. So we should definitely continue to have that aspect of the dreadful fear of God, although it's not that servile fear. We turn into that filial fear like a son to a father. And that's only known by right views of God. So that leads into the second point. In order for Christians to properly fear the Lord, we must first be understand how the fear of the Lord is produced. And this answers the question, how do I get it? Well, the first one there, uh, it looks like on some of your notes, the numbering system is off. Number four for some of you, number one for others. Um, At conversion, God himself will give us this fear. So how is this fear produced? How is this godly, reverential, awe-venerating fear produced? Well, look at this. It says, at conversion, God himself will give us this fear. Jeremiah 32, 37 through 41 says, Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and my great indignation. I will bring them back to this place. I will make with them a dwelling in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all of my heart and all of my soul. Can you hear God speaking that to us this morning? For Christians, a part of the new covenant, he will put the fear of him in our hearts. He'll plant it like a seed to keep us from turning away from him. However, that's very passive, right? Well, if if I'm just waiting on God to give me the fear, I don't have to do anything. So if I don't fear him, I just need to complain that he hadn't given it to me yet, right? No. Just like other things, the fruit of the Spirit, he's implanted in our hearts. But what do we have a responsibility to do? Work it out. We have a responsibility. There's a seed that's been planted, but we water and cultivate our soul for growth. So a proper view, the next in your line, a proper view of God's character will give us this fear. Knowing who God is, proper view of God's character will give us this fear. So God gives it to us, conversion. But as we cultivate it, we've got to think right thoughts about God, and that will naturally produce fear. Genesis 31, um, Jacob is talking, and he says, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. Did you hear that? He's naming off names here. And he's like, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac, capital F, fear, then surely you would have sent me away empty-handed. God revealed himself to Jacob as a God who is fear. Not only a God to be feared, but a God whose name is fear. Remember last week when Adam talked about jealousy? He said God not only has jealous, he is capital J, jealous. That's his name, one of his names. God is not only to be feared, but he is capital F, fear. So if our understanding of who God is doesn't include an aspect of fear, then we may not know him at all. So it's, it begs the question for sure that we, uh, that we seek to know. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says, Our God is a consuming fire, and we are to worship him with reverence and in awe. Understanding God's holiness and greatness will cause us to tremble. So part of God's character, I mean, the list is indefinite but just taking two like we did this morning his holiness and his greatness when we understand what's really going on around the throne when we understand what's going on in heaven 
that will naturally produce the right response to God. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah, just like John, is taken to heaven and he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Listen, it sounds very similar. High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, these heavenly creatures. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, lightning, and thunder. There's terrifying things happening around the throne of God. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So when Isaiah sees God for who he is, what does he do? He hits the ground. Woe is me, I am a sinful man. This is a reverential respect and honor of the authority figure here of God in light of the sinfulness of man. If we don't have this perspective about God currently, then we need to reevaluate, A, our thoughts about God and our reevaluate our thoughts about ourselves. Because this is what happens when you're in his presence. And then Revelation 1, John, before he gets into Revelation 4 where we read this morning, Jesus appears to him, the resurrected Christ, and he says, I'll just read you what it says. It says, The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, furnished in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Can you imagine seeing Christ and describing him that way? In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So he sees the resurrected Christ. He also hits the ground as though he's a dead man. But Jesus says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and have the keys of death and Hades. This is not one fear where these guys ran away from the presence of God. They trembled and stayed in reverential awe. So his holiness and goodness will produce this. But also understanding his goodness and forgiveness will cause us to tremble. Psalm 34, listen to this. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. So, fear God. Taste and see that he is good. Come, listen to me. I'm going to teach you what the fear of the Lord is. Fear him. But taste and see his goodness. There's an aspect of his goodness that leads to this fear. In Psalm 130, it can't be any plainer than it says it. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who can stand? Right? This holy God, if he should mark iniquities and not offer a forgiveness, who can stand? No one. Romans 3 says, no one's righteous. No, not one. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be liked? No. That you may be loved? No. That you may be feared. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. So his goodness and his mercy and his forgiveness leads us to this reverential awe that we have about him. It's important that we don't shoot the breeze with this God in our minds. This is not our buddy. You know, there's some shirts that say Jesus is my homeboy. That is not the living Christ that is described in Revelation 1. And that is not the aspect of of fear that John felt when he saw him. Oh, what's up, bro? My homeboy. 
No, it's I am ruined. But Christ says, fear not, I am alive, I'm for you, I am offered the way. You can come to me with boldness and find forgiveness in the cross. But don't lose the aspect of respect here. I'm not your buddy. Jesus may call us friend, but we may be encroaching on a wrong perspective when we start calling him our friend. It's like a king who has a servant here. The servant may be out of place to say, hey, the king's my buddy. But the king has all the authority and the right to decide to call his servant a friend. And that's what Jesus says, right? In the New Testament, no longer do I call you slaves, but I call you friends. So let's not shoot the breeze with God in our minds. We might have wrong perspectives of him. I love this quote, and I hope you guys do too. This is from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. C.S. Lewis, talking about Aslan. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. They're talking to the beavers. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beast? Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Well, is he quite safe? I shall feel, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who says anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Isn't that awesome? Man, C.S. Lewis in the mind of children's books is gripping my heart. You know, It's awesome. He's not safe. Of course not. Whoever said that? Whoever said that God is safe? But he's good. His goodness leads us to love him in reverence. Three, um, a proper view of God's presence will produce this biblical fear. The proper view of God's presence. Genesis 28, when Jacob is on his way traveling through the land, he falls asleep and has a dream. And the dream is... A staircase and angels descending to and fro and God speaks to him. And this is what he says. Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how dreadful, how awesome is this place. There is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So whatever his perspective of who God was, when he realized that God was here, how dreadful is this place? I'm meeting God. This is a terrifying thing. But he didn't run away again. He stayed and worshiped. Psalm 139 says, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. The psalmist knows the presence of God is very important in the aspect of living life in the fear of God. So I had a couple side notes. And don't worry when you see the rest of the notes, we may not get to them. For the time's sake. But my side note here, and we're still in a proper view of his presence, is a practice of his presence will lead to a life of godliness rich with the fear of God. In Leviticus 19, God is giving his commands, right? He says, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. Well, when he goes down and he says, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. So don't curse people who are deaf who can't hear you. Why? Because I hear you. Don't put a stumbling block before someone who's blind and can't see who did it. 
because I see who did it. I am the Lord. You're to live your life in the presence that I am here. I am around you to where if you think you're getting away with something on playing a trick on a blind guy who won't know who did it, rest assured I know. His presence leads to that. Colossians 3.25 says, Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service or people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So if you're a slave and you have a master, don't, like I've heard a pastor say, don't hear his footsteps coming and start working harder and scrubbing to shine up so that when he comes in, he casts his eye on you and you're like, oh, he sees me. This is great. But knowing that after the master has left, God's eye is always on you for your work, a practice of his presence. So we know right thoughts about him and his character, but we practice his presence, and this will lead to the fear of God. Think about it. How does the fear of God affect judges? Well, a judge who fears the Lord, much like Solomon, and much like hopefully some people in our country do today, a judge who fears the Lord will make just decisions because he knows he himself will be what? Judged one day. A judge in the fear of the Lord judges rightly. Think about parents who fear the Lord will lead their kids in the discipline of the Lord, exercising these things for their good in light of the fact that they are held to an accountability relationship with God. Think about students. Like It doesn't matter if the teacher is gone from the room or not. I don't cheat on my test because God is present. I'm not looking to please people by way of eye service. When we do our taxes, when we drive on the road, It's not just the aspect of seeing a police officer that we're like, oh, the fear grips me. But we should be driving in such a way to where we know God is watching. And I was talking to Kyle about this yesterday. Even if we're not driving fast, it still doesn't help that we still feel that. Like, oh, man, there's a cop, you know. But we should always be driving and doing things in light of the fear of God. And lastly, spouses and people who are not married, we seek purity and honoring the covenant of marriage within marriage. Because God is present. Like Joseph said, I'm not going to mess around here. God is my God. He is here. He is present. And if you're single, you're seeking for purity as well because you recognize that God is there. If you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing, whether it's on a computer or doing something with a group of friends, anything that would suddenly be stopped by somebody's presence entering the room, how much more should it be stopped because God is ever present, right? It shouldn't matter that somebody's not there. God is ever present and watching. If we are continuing in sin, not thinking about his active presence or with the terrible perspective that God is a good God and I'll just repent afterwards and he'll forgive me, we are not living life in the fear of God. Not at all. And we need to pray for right perspectives of who God is and a right perspective of his presence. And remember, this is not a slave-like fear. It's a fatherly fear. We want to grow where we serve and obey God, not out of the fear of consequences of being punished, nor primarily out of the fear that we will have to give an account one day for all that we say and do, because we will, but that we obey out of love and devotion to him for all that he is and all he's done. So an acceptance of God's knowledge and his presence will lead us to this. Well, scripture also talks about a rejection of knowledge. God's knowledge and presence will lead to a life of ungodliness. I'm not going to go through this. I'm going to skip it so we can get down to letter C. But it does say one of them, Genesis and uh, Abraham, he said he lied to the king there about Sarah being his wife, told him it was his sister. He said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. It is right that Abraham thought 
These people are going to kill me because why? They don't fear God. Not fearing God leads to a life that is not held by any standard. And that's what's also seen in Romans 3 when Paul says, no one's righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside. He goes through this whole list, and at the very end, to sum it all up, he says, their feet are swift to shed blood. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So a fear of God properly cultivated in our hearts through the knowledge of his character and his presence will lead to this right fear. But if you reject it, just like the atheist said, hey, I rejected it, and what do you know? Cool breeze all the way down to this life that I now enjoy. Yeah, if you reject it, that's your path. So choose wisely. Letter C. We must also understand why the fear of the Lord is significant. Why it is important. So there's a lot of writing here. I'm going to try to give you time just to to write it down. I want you to write it down so that you can go back and examine these passages on your own. So again, in order for Christians to properly fear the Lord, we must first understand how the fear of the Lord is defined and how it is produced. But now understand why is it significant? Why is it important? If you're asking some questions, what does it mean? How do I get it? Well, why is it important? Well, there's plenty of passages to choose from. I just tried to choose a few. Ecclesiastes 12:13, we already read, said, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The true meaning of life and the whole duty of man is the fear of the Lord. If we ever want to be able to fulfill our purpose for living, then we must fear God. So you could write down, we must fear God if we want to be able to fulfill our purpose for living. I know that's a lot in that little blank. You could say if we want to be, well, fulfill our purpose for living. Said it best there, I guess. Fulfill our purpose for living. We want to fulfill our purpose for living. Secondly, Exodus 18, 21. He's talking to Moses about looking for guys to serve. Moreover, look for able men from all the people. Men who what? Fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Moses, in this passage, looked for men who feared God to serve as judges. So we must fear God, in your blank, if we ever want to be qualified to serve God. If we want to be qualified to serve God, then it is closely tied to a fear of him. Exodus 20, 18 through 20, moving down. This is such an awesome passage because God brings the Israelites to the foot of the mountain to to give them his law. And terrible smoke and lightning and just God's glory is being revealed on this mountain. And it says, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. See that? So God revealed himself from the mountain to put the fear of him in his people of to keep them from sinning. He says, I put my fear of you before you that you may not sin. It's funny because Moses is like, hey, don't be afraid. God came to put fear here. 
what? Don't be afraid. He's here to bring fear. Yeah, don't. In some ways, like, this is God. Who else is mighty and holy as this God? What else do you have to fear? Like in the New Testament, don't fear what you're going to eat. Don't fear what you're going to wear. Don't fear man who can only kill your body. Don't fear these things. This is an unbiblical fear. Fear God, though. But he's placed his fear, he's planted it in us, like Jeremiah 32 said, so that we may not leave him, so that we may not, we may not sin. So the blank there you could put, if we want to be, we must fear God if we want to be protected from falling into sin. So if you're struggling right now with a particular pattern of sin, let's reevaluate our perspective of God and his presence. But let's be very vigilant and urgent about harboring and fostering this fear of God because it protects us from falling into sin. Proverbs 1, next 7 and 9 and 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then 9 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The fear of the Lord is the chief part of knowledge and wisdom. I was listening to a pastor explain this. It's not just the beginning. It's the chief part of all wisdom and understanding, the fear of God. It's like the ABCs and the one, two, threes. No scientist or no journalist ever writes a paper by going beyond what he learned in kindergarten using letters. No scientist ever uses different numbers that he's, he's elevated to. It's the same one. It's the chief part, the foundation for all learning and writing books and mathematical equations are the ABCs and the one, two, threes. The chief part of the fear of God, or chief part of the wisdom and true knowledge is the fear of God. So, in your blank, we must fear him if we ever want to have true knowledge and understanding. I mean, it's plain. If it's the beginning and the chief part, then if we don't fear him, we don't have it. So, in order to have it, we must fear him. So, we must fear God if we ever want to have true knowledge and understanding. Acts 9.31 So the church, the New Testament church, throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The early church is characterized by what? Walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So people that might say, oh, the fear of God, it's an Old Testament thing. It's outdated. No. The New Testament church is walking in the fear of God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So we must fear God. If we want to follow in the example of the earliest Christians, if we want to follow in the example of other Christians, we must fear God. Ephesians 5:22. I'm just, again, I'm hitting high points here. It's a theme throughout all of Scripture. You could do this on your own, but I definitely want us to walk away with seeing how significant it is. So bear with me as we get through the rest of these. Ephesians 5.22, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence or fear of Christ. And then he goes on, he says, wives submit your husbands, husbands submit your wives, children obey your parents, bond servants to your masters, everybody. I'm giving you the standard for how you're to conduct yourselves with each other, and it's all rooted in the fear and the reverence of Christ that you submit. So we must fear God if we want to submit to one another the way God calls us to. If we want to be healthy church members, even in our church, and do what the Bible says, we've got to fear and foster or foster this fear of God. 
We must fear God if we want to submit to one another the way God commands us to or calls us to. And any of these that you miss, come see me afterwards. I'll give them to you. Philippians 2.12 Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Paul is talking to the church here, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see that? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Do all things without grumbling that you may be blameless and innocent children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So we must fear God if we want to live as lights in the lost world. If we want to have an effect for Christ and show that we're different and shine as a light in the midst of darkness, we must fear God. If we want to live as lights to the lost world. Hebrews 3, 12 through chapter 4, verse 1. Take care, brothers. Take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Chapter 4, 1. Therefore... While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So this verse, in fear, Christians are to strive to live for the prize at the end and not fall by short-sighted disobedience. So what you can write in your blank is, we must fear if we want to ensure our hearts do not become hardened. He's warning people, don't continue to maintain an unbelieving heart. It'll lead you to fall away from the living God. We must fear God if we want to ensure that our hearts do not become hardened. Two more. 1 Peter 1, 17. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy... You also be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the preciousness of blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. There are so many things in this one that you could have written down. I mean, it's just overwhelming. Christians should conduct themselves in fear of the Lord throughout the whole time they are on earth. That's the command. Hey, you're sojourning on earth. You're not home. Heaven's your home. But the whole time that you're here, conduct yourselves in fear. But he says it in, in light of as and if you call on him as father who judges, conduct yourselves with fear. So what you could write is we must fear God if we want to be able to call on the holy judge of the universe as Father, this holy God that we learned about in Revelation 4 and Isaiah 6, if we want to be able to call this holy God Father, then we must fear him. And obviously, fearing him and making him our Father leads us straight to Christ and turning from our sin to be saved. So we can call him our Father when we turn from sin and repent. But again, may we never forget the fear of God as it is our duty the whole life that we're on this planet. And the last one, Revelation fourteen seven, 
and 15.4. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth. Hear this? There's an angel. He's about to give a gospel. It's an eternal gospel, a message that is always relevant to every tribe and every nation, every language and every people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So this eternal message, fear God and worship him. Everybody, the whole earth, you're commanded to fear God and stand in awe of him. This doesn't change Old Testament to New Testament. doesn't change in our century. If we don't fear God, there's something wrong with us, not because something's outdated. There's angels that will, in the end, continue to say, fear God and worship him. And in that second passage, it says, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, great and amazing are your deeds. This is the song of heaven. You ever wondered what kind of song we'd sing? This is one of them. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Who will not fear you is the song of heaven. So we must fear God if we truly, if we wish to truly worship God like he is worshipped in heaven. We must fear God if we wish to truly worship God like he is worshipped in heaven. It is a clear mark of worship of heaven, this fear of him. So there's some final implications before we get to the application. And it's in light of all of these passages. I hope that you see if we don't have this, then these things aren't true. But if we want these things to be true, we must have this. Well, how do we have it? Foster right thoughts about him. Practice his presence. Receive what he himself has already implanted in us. He's given it to us. We've got to work it out with fear and trembling. Implications. Living in the fear of God will change the way we view our relationship to God. You don't have to write this down. But think about it. Living in this fear will change the way we view our relationship with God. This is true. Because when we harbor right thoughts about him, worship will be genuine. In spirit and in truth, right? Worship without truth is devoid of something. It's devoid of a really important thing. Truth is important. Living in the fear of God will change the way we view our relationship to other people. Like we read in one of the passages in Ephesians, we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. When we fear God, we will be able to live differently with other people. And living in the fear of God will change the way we view our relationship to sin. So I know all of us are still, even if we are recipients of grace, still battling sin. But this fear of God, this healthy respect, the seriousness of it will hopefully change the way that you battle. So each of you, if you have patterns, me, as I have patterns of sin and ungodliness, may we get rid of these things, flee these things. These are the things that the wrath of God is coming upon. Let us run from them. But we can't just harbor some emotional state that say, I don't want to do this anymore. I got to go. Anything devoid of the fear of God being the basis for this will only end in frustration because it's short-sighted. We have to fear the Lord. We have to have proper perspectives of who he is. This will lead us to fight sin differently, right? Wouldn't we fight sin differently if we thought about God the way that Isaiah says? 
we practice his presence like the scriptures say? Another one I just thought about that I didn't write down is living in the fear of God will also change the way that we pray and the way that we read his word. Let us not, again, come flippantly to our buddy to talk to him. Yes, we, we have the ability to call on him as daddy, as Abba, father, because of what Christ has done. But this isn't some God that we can just come and I've heard Matt Chandler say kind of humorously, but seriously, we can't just come and sit in Jesus's lap and snuggle and play in his beard. This is not this type of Jesus that we serve. So that's in a humorous way, hopefully to show that that's sometimes the perspective that we carry implicitly. So in some ways I've heard, uh, I think David Platt said that universalism, obviously this is aside from notes, is the belief that everyone's going to make it to heaven, right? So universalists have no need to share the gospel because everybody's going to make it. He warns his church, don't be practical universalists in the sense of when you see your neighbor, share the gospel with him because he's going to hell without the gospel. So don't be a practicing universalist, even though you don't believe in universalism. Well, in some ways, I want to add to that. Atheism is living without the fear of God. Let us not be practical atheists by living without harboring this fear. Does that make sense? If we live without this, we're doing the same things that atheists do. Let us not be practical atheists. So the application. Understanding the fear of veneration. Again, that profound respect. Let us, in reverence, so understanding the fear of veneration, let us, in reverence, serve, love, and walk before God and keep his commandments. So when we understand the fear of veneration, let us, in reverence, serve, love, and walk before God and keep his commandments. So why do you think I chose serve, love, and walk and keep his commandments? Why is that my application? Listen to what Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13 says. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? So if you've ever wondered, what does the Lord require of me? It says, what does the Lord require of you? And it says, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. You ever wondered what the Lord requires of you? Fear him, serve him, love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with that filial love, that father-son fear. And keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which are for our good, for his glory and our good. So in reverence, serve, love, and walk before God and keep his commandments. And lastly, understanding the fear of dread, let us turn away from evil and call others to do the same. So the last aspect here, when we understand the fear of dread, the dread that we should never lose of our holy and awesome God, let us turn away from the evil that he hates and that hurts his people, and let us call others to do the same. And why do I say call others to do the same? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.11 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, all of us, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You may receive good, you may receive bad. Either way, we all stand before him. 
We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is good for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. See that? Everybody's got to stand before him. Therefore, knowing the fear of God, we persuade others. We reach out to other people. God's wrath is coming. That is the only reason Christ hasn't come back yet is that he is exercising patience so that people can be saved. But this is the end of the story. Whether you, you know, get licensed to do whatever you want to do in your job, whether I get, you know, have a certain amount of kids or whatnot or where I live, the end of all of our stories are, is the same as Revelation called. There's going to be a day when the sky splits open if we don't die first and encounter him there in heaven. But the sky splits open and there's the glorified risen Christ in all of his glory, the one that people hit the ground because of. And which Philippians 2 rightfully says, every knee shall bow and confess that he is God. This is what's coming. The end of our story is the same. God's wrath is coming to destroy sin forever. So in reverence, we love and keep his commandments to stay on this side. But understanding the reality of what's happening, we, we persuade others. And last night, man, I was driven to almost tears. I was just trembling because I... I heard on the news, my CNN app came up and said that there was a plane that crashed in Ohio yesterday afternoon. And I wasn't prepared for what I saw, but when I watched the video, it was just, it, it terrified me. Because there's a plane, it's just driving, there's a, there's a wing walker on it. And if you've seen it, you know what I mean. The plane goes upside down and the wing walker's there. And then the plane loses control. It's like only 100 feet from the ground and it crashes and explodes. Both people dead just like that. And... You hear the voice of the announcer like, hey, everybody, watch. Here comes the plane and the wing walker. Like, watch as they do this. This is so amazing. And then you hear the utter terror in his voice as he realizes that they're dead. They're gone. And I don't say this out of disrespect for what happened yesterday. But it gripped my heart. It's still, it's like pounding right now, thinking about there was someone in that plane standing on that wing doing something. A second later, and I saw it, a second later, they're standing before God. That is the end of the story for all of us. All of us. It doesn't matter if you get killed in a car wreck or if you, get, you die of cancer slowly or if Christ comes back. It is appointed once for man to die, the scripture says, and then comes judgment. So for the lost world, this is a terrifying thing. I don't understand why I don't tell more people. Why do I not tell people? It's like seeing a man on a track, a train come barreling towards his body and me say, ah, I just don't want to see it happen. I mean, how much do you have to hate somebody to not tell them to get off the track? And yes, there may be people that we encounter that say, there's no train. But in their hearts, they know. They hear the rumble. They know it's coming. But we've got to warn people. This is the end. But at the same time, for believers who have no fear of condemnation, though, we still very humbly and seriously remember Live soberly the whole time that you're on earth in exile. Live in the fear of God. Live knowing that you will stand before Christ one day. So I think in all of it, the fear of God that's appropriate is very similar to the fear that I felt this morning about teaching. I fear not that you guys are going to start throwing things at me or even if you said terrible things about how it was just terrible. I don't fear, dreadfully fear that. But I recognize that I'm speaking God's word. This isn't my word, and that terrifies me in a good way because it's, an, it's a great honor 
and respect and the seriousness. It causes me to humble myself. Let us walk in humility, understanding the times and knowing the fear of the Lord, what's coming. So let's pray. I'm going to ask the band as well after we get done. Pray that you guys can come ahead and come. Let's just sing How Great Is Our God again. Um, the, the verses are awesome. The splendor of a king clothed in majesty. Let all the earth rejoice. This is our command. He wraps himself in light and darkness tries to hide and it trembles at his voice. It trembles at his voice. How great is our God. Let's pray.